Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I'm Jake Bennett. And welcome to episode 120 of the North Meet South Web Podcast. Oh, man. Um, wow. I think it's 120. I don't know if it's actually episode 120, but we're going to go with that. You sounded so sure. It, you sounded so yeah, sure. I was quite like, sure. 120, straight away. Yeah, I know. I know. I was semi-sure, and now I'm a little bit less sure, but it's okay. It's okay. Okay, so folks, we have got a uh, relatively quick show for you here. It's going to be a tight 30 minutes, probably. And uh, Mr. Dorinda's got some cool stuff to talk about. So the items that you had put on the list for today are painless PR review, Unified third-party integration uh, through naming, grouping, and implementation. Sounds like documentation stuff to me that you have to just kind of get all the team on board with. And then I had put in getting rid of your env.example file. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. 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 And also, I know the other one was uh, NPM CI versus yarn versus etc. Okay. There we go. So... I am going to let you start us off then. So go ahead, painless PR review. Hit me. What you got? Mm, mm. I um I had someone reach out to me. They're writing a article. Um, this was Matthew Setter. For those of you who don't know, Matthew used to run a uh, podcast called Free the Geek. He's writing an article for someone, and he asked, you know, what what is it that I kind of look for or see or what was it? Would reducing code review time? And this is something that like I've come up to against in the past because I've always been responsible for like code review. Sure. Um, well, I have been for a long time, not always, but you know, sometimes, you know, you get bogged down with your own stuff, you don't get time to do it. And then you, you, you come to a PR and it's this, this giant thing that's like col- the culmination of weeks of work or whatever. And there's like lots of stuff to review. And so, you know, how do you work to reduce the time that it takes you to, to do that? And this is something that I'm trying to, trying to get in place where I am now is that, we want to kind of open pull requests early. We want to open pull requests often. We want to keep um, pull requests discreet. You know, you you the thing, and and I'm th- this happens to me as well, where you start like working on a discrete task and you see something, and before you know it, you've like fixed some code style over here or you've refactored something over there, and you've got like all of this stuff unrelated to the pull request, and it's a discipline thing to to try and keep focused on on the tasks at hand and so you know if you're not disciplined about it things get out of hand and then you've got this this giant pr but too too many times when in the past i've seen you know introduction of new features or new behaviors or or things like that bug fixes typically are fine typically bug fix is you know one line fix here it's it's you know six hours of figuring out what the problem is and then five minutes and one line to, to fix it and those are easy to review um, but the features are the, are the ones that, that take more time. And if you're not on top of them, then, you know, it just takes forever. And then you end up with these, you know, looks good to me kind of poor reviews where you never really look at it. And so what you find out, find out there is how agile, like lowercase a, agile your business is in terms of how do you deal with the bugs that are inevitably going to find their way into production. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you could have the most solid, robust review process in existence. You could have, you know, two reviewers or three reviewers or whatever else, and everyone can look at it and you go over it with a fine tooth comb and you and you figure out like you've you've thought of everything and you ship it to production and then of course cu- 
some customers going to find something. One yep, of your users always, is going yep, sure. to find Like it always happens. And so, you know, the, the mindset that I'm trying to kind of get across the line now is how can we keep the, the pull request small? How can we like that you could have one feature, but it could have like 10 pull requests. Like you don't mm. have to do everything all at once. You could um, snap like an integration branch from master. And then you could create all of your feature branches from that. And this is coming down to like that. What was it? It was very popular some time ago. Continuous integration. Uh, I mean, is that what we're talking about? I mean, continuous integration is like, it's like a Kent back extreme programming methodology, right? Where it's like, yeah, everyone commits to the mainline branch every day. Right. Yeah. Sort of the rule, right? But, but the but the, the the idea of continuous integration is that like your master is always in a shippable state. Like you, sure. any time of day, you could just hit ship and it, and it's fine. What what I'm talking about is more. Um, uh, GitFlow was the one. Oh where sure. You've got, like master, and then you've got dev, dev and you've got, the like, feature branches, the, you know, all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, for for bigger features that you like, you're not ready to put it into master. You might create like a feature there, but then you do discrete pull requests onto the feature branch. So you could have like this overarching feature. And then the very first pull request, you need to make database changes. So you you create a new branch from that feature branch and and you create your migration file as you see it as whatever else. And then you open a pull request for that feature branch uh, from, from like that isolated piece of work onto the feature branch, right? So the implication there is that each individual small little piece, like the little morsels, the, mm. the little tasty little morsels of code <laughs> are always reviewed independently. So you don't get to the end and you've got you've got um you know you've got your migrations and your cedars and then you've got a controller and then you've got a form request and then you've got um you know tests and all of this kind of stuff that you need to review in this one mammoth sized pull review uh, or pull request rather. So I think opening them early and 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 keeping them discrete and focused means that you know, as the reviewer, you can look at it quicker, you can understand it quicker, you can sort of grok what's going on in in that isolated context. So when it comes time to reviewing the full feature before it gets merged back into main, you have, you know, that gives you obviously the full the full context, but it also means that you're not running into these issues where there's like stuff scattered about the place in terms of like, this is in a state and then there's someone else is working on a piece of work that kind of relies on that. And so that they've got to like, branch and integrate with like this this big thing that's like got all this other stuff in it so i think i think that really helps and then the other thing that you get with with keeping pull requests small is you can open them small you can uh, open them early and then you can get feedback early and this is something that i'm enjoying more and more because it was always a daunting thing for me as a reviewer and and definitely the people whose code i was reviewing to, to, to work on something for a week and go, this is ready for review. And then I come in and I'm like, you've got all this stuff that you need to change, you know? And that's, you know, partly because like maybe the scope wasn't clear or the requirements weren't clear or, or, or a difference of interpretation of style or how things, you know, oh, we do, we've done an inline validation in this controller. Okay, well, let's pull that into a form request because it's big. So being able to, to, to review things more often in smaller pieces means that you get the feedback sooner so you don't go too far down the garden path of like the wrong trajectory and it means that you can you can sort of like head problems off at the pass rather than waiting until you've got like this whole bunch of stuff and then you have to go back and refactor yeah and it like reduces the mental overhead for me as a reviewer as well from having to try and contextualize 
you know, hundreds of lines of changes potentially or thousands of lines of changes potentially in, in a giant giant PR. And, and like I said before, you're much more likely with this giant pull request to just say, yeah, that looks fine and then kind of deal with the repercussions when something breaks. But it also helps to deliver the outcomes to stakeholders quicker. You know, if you can deliver pieces of functionality, you know, get the database stuff in first. And, and, and this is like, it's, it's easier said than done, right? That you, you merge, like you come up with your migrations. Everyone agrees that like, this is the database structure that we want to use. You open that pull request, you merge that pull request and, and that's in master. And then you can ship that to production. And like that stuff is just sitting dormant in your code, right? Those migrations get run. Nothing's using it yet, which is fine. But it means that that's kind of out of the way and it's no longer part of the, you know, the, this giant piece of context. It's already in there. And so, like I said, that that kind of changes the way that you have to think about how you're putting these new features out because you need to separate everything, right? Yeah. You don't want to push something that, re- like, and you have to do it in the right order. You've got to do database, then you've got to do, you know, controller, then form request and whatever else. And, and, and that's not to say that, like, you would never ship all of these things together. I think it's it's about keeping it small and sort of keeping it focused. And this is this is in the absence of like pairing. You know, this is the the whole async thing where like you do I say do this, you do something, you come back later and then I look at it. It's it means that I can go into pull requests every morning and spend like an hour or two hours just looking at the pull requests and saying, like, is there anything I need to look at? Is there anything that's changed? Like who's who's straying off off the beaten path kind of thing and kind of getting that sorted out early. Because like it's just it, like if it was bad for everyone for to get someone to tell you that like this week's worth of work has to be completely refactored because it's wrong. Um, yeah, that's so, that does and, feel and pretty steering, terrible. Yeah. Steering is much more gentler, um, and it's it's a much more, uh, in my opinion, um, collaborative effort. Because if you say like why are we why are we going this way? Can we do it this way? And then you can kind of you know have that discussion early so that you end up in the right place from the from the outset rather than having to circle back with a big refactor. Yeah, the hard thing is too with pull requests, like especially if you're doing them. So if the person who's developing them is developing in isolation apart from any sort of pairing, then the person who's reviewing them is also reviewing in isolation with no idea of the trade-offs that were made in order to arrive at the solution that they arrived at either. I found myself in mm. that spot before where it's like, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. You should do this. And then they come back and say, well, the reason why I had to do that was because of X, Y, and Z. It's like, oh, that totally makes sense, actually. I understand why you couldn't use our typical pattern here. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, let's do it that way, right? So even in reviewing PRs, I've tried to, if I can't be available to pair during the during the programming, right? Because that's not always the case. Um, I at least try and be on the on the line with the developer while I'm doing the review. So they can kind of guide me yeah. through the sticky points. Like, okay, so right here, you know, either like right here, I had a question about this because this didn't make sense to me. Can you help me understand that? Or, or I'm looking at it and I say, this piece doesn't seem like this falls in line kind of with how we do this. Uh, were you aware of this pattern? Mm-hmm. They can say either, oh, no, I wasn't aware of that. Can you explain that to me? Yep, I can. Instead of me trying to like point it out in a big, you know, in a big comment. Or they can say, yes, I am aware of that pattern. And here's why I chose to do it this way instead. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, I know the whole async thing. I, I feel like pull requests are great for async. Um, I mean, I don't know how else you would do it, honestly. And with some yeah. of the things that have become available in GitHub pull requests specifically within the last two years, things like uh, being able to check which files you've already viewed. And then they mm-hmm. only expand Definitely. if there's been changes since the last time you viewed them has been super helpful. Yeah. You know, being able to resolve yeah, I think part comments, of my pain and being able to... I think part of my pain and suffering is just like having to use Bitbucket. <laughs> that is tough, man. Because... That, that is the, tough, yeah. The, 
the bit bucket i mean and and this is we before i started we're not really doing pull requests at all we were just like create branches and then someone would open the compare view manually and then like it's just impossible to have any kind of sensible discussion about that because where do you put the comments how do you come back to see like what's changed and even even now that we're starting to use pull requests if i make it you know it, it doesn't have that nice reviewer centric kind of flow that github has where you have you know the I've seen this file, show me what's changed. If I had a comment and someone makes a change based on that comment, the comment still sits there and now it's like out of context with, with the updated code. So then you have to go and like, I don't know, delete it, say this is done. Like it, it's just that process. And I, and part of that is because Atlassian's got like separate tools for all of this. Sure. Um, like Codefish or whatever it's, I don't know. They've, okay. they've got some some separate tool that's like, this is the the code review tool. And that's just trying to get the the hooks in into the, you know, ecosystem. So that once you're using everything, it's just too hard to get out of. But um, so yeah, I think so for you, a lot you of it is just that. When you first came in, you guys weren't using pull requests. You were just kind of like making a branch and then and then merging to master. Uh, the, I mean, there was still review happening. It was just like a manual thing. There was no you know history of the the, the discrete you know branches. We've I mean, other than the fact that we've got like a thousand branches that have never been deleted once they were merged. So Ooh, yikes. <laughs> Yeah, you know that kind of kind of thing. They're, they're kind of just in the repository. Yeah, but like no, there's no there was no pull request. It was open. You know, go to bitbucket.org, um, go to the branch, open the compare view, look at the code, which which is hard. You know, when you go back to it again, because then you have to, you know, figure out okay, what's because you, you don't know what's changed. Yeah, you can't you can't see like you can compare between like the last commit and the current commit, but then you can't contextualize that into like the the head and and um, you know wherever main is at to then see what's actually being trying you know what we're trying to merge into into main. So yeah, that's really difficult. Yeah, that, I mean we're we're better now in terms of like we've got the pull request, but the the bit bucket story in terms of actually doing that is is not great. So how do you feel like that's affected like your velocity, your team's velocity? Um, like has it slowed you down quite a bit having like actual PRs? Uh, previously, was it more like yeah, I mean. I'm going to give it a quick look over to kind of do some just checking for like misspellings or stuff that's really off the rails. But generally, unless I just see something really obvious, I'm just going to say, yep, looks good. Ship it. Right. And so mm-hmm. and then we'd kind of find errors in in production or you would, you know, have tests, hopefully that would catch some of those. And that was sort of like your your double check rather than your reviewer being the guy who was like responsible to catch everything guy or girl. Right. Like, how do you feel like your team has been affected as far as like their ability to ship code quickly? Do you feel like pull requests have actually benefited that or have made it more difficult? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think we're really using pull requests too effectively at the moment. Okay. And I think it's kind of still a thing for a lot of, a lot of changes that it's like, we're going to get to pull requests, but it's like, we're not, we haven't said everything has to be a pull request. Yeah. Um, so there is still stuff that's like snapped in a branch and then worked on and then and then pushed up. Yeah, uh, you know, merged into master that way. I don't think it would slow us down, right? Yeah, I I think the the current process uh, and I'm not doing a lot of the review at the moment. It's still the CTO, just you know, for legacy reasons, and and they've still got like context of everything. And I've been working on all kinds of skunk worky type stuff, but you know, the the CTO is still like grabbing the branch, pulling it down locally, running all the Postman tests manually, like making sure all the existing stuff hasn't been broken by changes that have been... Like it's it's a very slow and manual process. And that's that's kind of bottlenecked even further by the fact that the CTO is busy doing other stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And we've, we've had this project where we're 
migrating servers and migrating our infrastructure from you know one provider to another and that that kind of took them up for for weeks and it just meant that other stuff wasn't done like they didn't have time to do code review and, and things like that and so it just you just get this backlog and so this is where we're kind of looking at like how do we unblock that so that we can review things in smaller pieces and just get it out and it, and and particularly because like we've got back end and front end in separate repos and we've got separate teams working on it there's no reason that we can't just ship things to master in the back end that the front end team can come to later and and sort of build the integrations later on it's just i think it's a bit trickier there as well because you have to keep the teams in sync so that you know if one gets done and then and then the front end team you know the the back end team ships something to production moves on to the next thing the front end team then goes oh we've you know hit this issue then the back end team has to kind of circle back and look at it so there's you know that's that's introducing complexity separate to the pull requests themselves yeah so the other piece that you're talking about which i'm interested in and then actually so i've been i've been looking this up just kind of as we've been talking there was somebody who basically proposed like not all pull requests actually need to be reviewed like they were saying like there's different types of pull requests and some of them do, some of them don't, right? They can they can add up to a huge, massive waste of time. And so as I've been looking like on uh, Dev.2, there's like a couple, there's two different articles at least that I found that are like, nope, you shouldn't do pull requests, which is sort of like, eh, really, I don't know about that. Uh, but there's other ones which basically say sort of what you're saying too, which is, um, yeah, definitely like try and ship each day sort of thing and keep everybody up to date on the latest. But the, the thing you have to be able to kind of nail down with that, which is what I have not yet been able to nail down on this, but I, I'm I'm in agreement with what you're talking about, is mm. uh, you got you got to do feature flags and like switches, things like that, which I don't know how to do that yet. I mean, there's a hundred different ways to do it. There's packages to do it. I've just not ever really... I've done it a couple times, maybe... Mm-hmm. 10 times in, in my career, like where I've actually shipped something behind a feature flag where it's like, we're still working on this, we're pushing it to production, but it's not on yet, right? And we're just sort yeah. of, we're working on it still. It's not there yet though. So I don't mm-hmm. know, that's, that's interesting. It's, I think it's a different pro- proposition for us as well because we're like separate backend, which is API only, there's no UI. So it's quite easy to ship something that unless you document and tell people about, they can't. Like they won't stumble upon it because it's not in a UI anywhere. So it, it's a little bit easier in that respect. But then, you know, as you say, there's there's a million different ways to do feature flags and it's whether like, is this feature on or off? Um, is this feature off, but it's available to certain like admin users or, you know, premium accounts or something like that? Or is this like a premium feature? All of that kind of stuff that that is kind of like configured somewhere probably isn't something that we need to worry about like we don't have to worry about it because like either you can access it or you can't Um, and most of our feature flagging happens on the front end in weird and wonderful ways i'm sure yeah okay cool so yeah i mean you could talk about that forever i I will say real quick things Mm. uh, like about the github pull request process that i've enjoyed so like i said there was um you know the ability to mark files as viewed. Uh, they have the new sidebar view, which allows you to sort of view the files in the context of where they're at rather than just a big, huge list of files that are diffed. The mm. ability to add suggestions to your comments. So if I have a particular little piece of code that I want to just make a little change in, like, oh, you actually wrote equals one here, but it should be equals true. Mm-hmm. I can just make a little commit suggestion and, oh, yep, they can they say accept accept suggestion and it just yeah. makes a new commit right yeah. that's been pretty handy also there's a feature now to enable auto merge because this happens mm-hmm. too where it's like okay i approved this and everything looks good but the tests still haven't passed yet 
So I'll have to wait, 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 wait. Test pass. Okay, now I can merge it. That's super annoying. So now what you can do is you can mm-hmm. say enable auto merge, and then you can just say, click that button. I approved it. The tests are running. As soon as the tests pass and all the other CI stuff passes, go ahead and it get merged. It gets merged, right? That's really handy. And then there's another uh, setting where you can say, go ahead and delete the branch once it's been merged. So if a pull request is closed and it gets merged, then just go ahead and delete that branch for me automatically. Because that used to be a two-step process. You have to you have to like wait yeah. for tests to pass, and then you'd have to squash merge, then you'd have to delete the branch. And now it just kind of does all that automatically, which is pretty sweet. Yeah, that's so, nice. Yeah, that I wonder nice. if I can convince work to move to GitHub or something. That's pretty freaking sweet. And then GitHub Actions is think, the other part of that, right? Which really makes it yeah. super nice. So we're using GitHub Actions for all of our tests now and for all of our... We have we have um, Sentry when we use Sentry for our... our uh, Error tracking, we do sentry releases where once mm-hmm. we once we have it in there, we basically push up to sentry. Hey, sentry, we're creating a new release. And here is the new uh, release SHA of the commit. And here are all the commits that took place between the last one and the current one. And then what, what uh, sentry will do is it looks at who is the author of those changes. And then when an error occurs, sentry will look at the, your history and say, who's the person who should be assigned to that? Who's the last person who changed mm-hmm. that line of code? Oh, that was Jimmy. Give that to Jimmy and assigns it to them automatically, which is pretty pretty, pretty freaking sweet. We're doing that through GitHub Actions as well. So I mean, that's the that's yeah. the other thing. I mean, you just get you get all the pieces together. All the uh, integration, yeah. yeah. And it's nice that it's all in one place. Yep. I think possibly you know we're on Bitbucket for legacy reasons because we were using Jira before, mm-hmm. and so it was like we got Jira, you may as well use Bitbucket, right, but we right. moved out of Jira into something else now and so we're using bitbucket just because it's there and it's it's probably a bit of a hassle but i think longer term it's probably worth moving just for especially once we start doing code review and you start yeah. seeing all of these you know not nice things because i said you know currently you you've got like the the diff view here and then you're going into jira this was when they were doing jira and then you're going into jira and you're leaving like code comments in there and then everyone gets spammed about the code like this needs to be changed but there's all of the stakeholders are in there. So like the marketing team and the, the product people and that, they're all getting these notifications, which is about code review. I said, use the pull request and keep all of that stuff within Bitbucket. And that way the developers can focus on the code stuff. And the only time you put anything in Jira is when you need updates from you know the business. We need to change something. What is the feedback on this? Please go here and review this, whatever else. Like They don't need to be involved in that conversation. But I think it just... I've never been anywhere that uses GitHub and I don't understand. Like, I know everywhere you've been, they've always used Bitbucket or GitLab or something. Yeah. Like it's either GitLab, like self-hosted GitLab or, or Bitbucket or... I mean, we do we do use GitHub for some of our stuff and that's because only because our front end is built and deployed on render.com and render doesn't have a Bitbucket integration. Mm-hmm. So like we have to use it for that. But yeah, it'd be nice to just move everything to GitHub. I think the... And it, like might be, I mean, it's probably not a cost thing, but I don't know. We just get so much, so much nicer stuff out of it. But we'll we're gonna leave that for now because we're we're looking at changing like all of our CI/CD and all of that kind of stuff as we move towards you know putting everything on AWS. So it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. Yeah, awesome. The other item that you had, which we can see if we want to talk about that one or if we want to talk about the no, we can skip stuff. it. We'll talk about yeah, yeah. let's talk about the EMV stuff because yeah. I am um, I wrote that down on saturday to talk about it on sunday but that was days ago and <laughs> i don't remember what it was You're like i'm bored i, I had now. a vague yeah. idea but i'd have to yeah but that's um let's let's talk about this emv thing sure deleting so, your emv example file so quick preface um this has to do with one password 
which we want to thank one password for sponsoring a show this week uh one password is really really great tool for managing all of your password just kidding one password doesn't sponsor the show although they should we should have them sponsor the show i recently switched from last pass over to one password i've got to say one of the most terrifying things in my life was exporting my last pass to csv and just like praying to god i like turned on like you know airplane mode or something on like if anybody ever was to compromise something like from if as everybody got a hold of the CSV, my life is over. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess I had yeah. like, I guess I had like multi-factor authentication turned on. on probably my most important services, but still. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I recently made a switch over to one password and put everything in there. So it's been really great. I've really enjoyed using it. Uh, but they've recently put out one password eight and they now have these developer tools. Vision and- eight. I don't have that. Yeah. One password eight. Yep. I've got it on my, uh, on my Mac right now. And then they've got like these CLI tools and developer tools now. And it's really, really pretty neat, but they put out this article not too long ago where it talks about, yep, go ahead and delete your ENV example file. So, uh, we'll share it in the show notes. Uh, let me see, go ahead, delete your ENV example file. So basically the premise is that the ENV example file is great, right? We all know what this is. This is basically the set of changes that is, or the set of uh, variables that you're supposed to have in your production environment. But the problem is like these things always seem to fall out of sync, right? And nobody really knows what they are or kind of what they're supposed to be. And so you end up like sharing secrets through Slack or, you know, something else, you know, you pair with them and you paste it in form or something like that, right? There's, it just, it ends up having to, it ends up sometimes falling out of sync with what it should be. And there's a bunch of tools that are out there that sort of solve this problem for you, right? There's, we've talked about a lot of them on like Laravel News, but the proposal here is they said, don't, don't do that. They said, the reason why you can't commit the ENV file, the .env file is because it contains secrets. So mm-hmm. let's do this. Let's take out all the secrets and instead, keep the ENV in your change, in your change management. And then what you do is you use 1Password to fill in those secrets. So where you'd have like DB user equals, and normally you'd have like the value. What you do is instead is you put this special sort of string, which is OP, which stands for 1Password, colon mm-hmm. slash slash. So like a URL. And then you put in the name of your project. This is just an example, right? So in this case, let's say then ping me, right? So op colon slash slash, mm-hmm. uh, then ping me dash env. So this is going to be dev production testing, whatever slash database slash username. So what you have is you have a vault in your one password called then ping me. And then you have a production or dev or testing uh, sort of flag on that thing. And then you set up these values in one password. And what it'll do is you just set up the CLI tool in your local environment or in your production server or whatever they have. They have little CLI tools that you can deploy for that. And then what it'll do is it will grab those values out of one password and it will inject those into your Hmm. ENV for you. So your ENV never actually has to stay out of source control. And then this ends up being exactly what you use for development, production, testing, and all of it just changes inside of one password, hmm. which is pretty sweet. You can restrict access to those, obviously, based on the people that are in your organization. Um, you know, if it has like, if you have like a lead, de- lead developer or whatever, and they need to know the production credentials, they can. But if you have a, a new junior that came on, you can just give them the dev and the testing stuff, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then the other thing is, because this is what's actually getting used in production, it never falls out of sync. It's always, the, always going to be the values that are going to be used. 
So that's that's really nice. And when your new developer is getting set up on stuff, they never have to try and figure out what is the dev values that we use here. What do we have to do? You don't have to look up some documentation or like, you know, look on the onboarding sort of the the readme to figure out how exactly do they need to sort of scaffold the ENV. Um, mm-hmm. Or you know, you have an Algolia test sandbox that you use when you're talking. You know, when you're doing local development and. How do you share those secrets? Well, you have some way yeah. that you do that, but it's not really a great way. Or you have some S3 buckets that you use just for development, local development that you kind of all share. Mm-hmm. And and that's not that's not anywhere. How do you share that secret? So it seems really interesting. Really, really interesting. Now mm-hmm. we cache all of our configs when we when we deploy, right? So on deploy, we say PHP artisan config cache. And then so basically all these values only get pulled one time. Um, so I think this would still work. The only time where it wouldn't maybe not necessarily work. One of the things they talk about, which is nice, uh, is they talk about, you know, in, in your existing workflow, you never rotate secrets because it's just a pain in the butt, right? How do you do that? Well, with yeah. one password now, all yeah. you have to do is change it in one password and mm-hmm. that's it. It's done. It will now be everywhere, everywhere that uses it. It's going to hit one password. And the next time it checks in to grab the value, it's going to grab the new one, Right. And they also have version control within your 1Password sort of vaults. So like you could see previous versions as well of what it was before. So mm-hmm. if you had the keys that you were rotating, you could see the old keys that I think were there. But You'd have to be careful with how you do that rotation though, especially because yep. you centralized it all. Yep. Because if you update the central store with a new key, you have to, like you've got to keep both sets of keys around until you've done all your deploys and updated all of your configs that's true now the the thing is you so so let's like walk through an example let's talk about like an s3 key right so in s3 uh, or sorry probably in i am you're going to have a policy that allows access to a particular s3 bucket so with that mm-hmm. i am user you are going to create a new you're going to generate a new key now those keys sort of overlap you have both of them active at the same time right so you could update the one password with the new one, but you just keep both of them active and you keep both of them active until you can go in and see that that key has not been used to authenticate in like a week, maybe, right? You keep both of them until the old one's no longer being used. Then you would just deactivate it in IM, like in in um, AWS, right? So one password yeah. in that situation is not actually the thing that is the authority on whether or not that either of those keys could be used. It's just where you say, this is the key that we should be using everywhere, right? And so the next time that it gets checked into to grab that key, that secret, it should use whatever one password says is the new one. But yeah, yeah, you do have to be careful about that. And then I guess, again, in my case, what we'd have to do is just because I would update it one password doesn't mean that it would be updated in our apps. We would have to do config cache again, and then it would grab those ENV values from one password and then pull that again. So interesting. Yeah, that'd be worth looking into because we, I mean, we've got that now. We've just, we, we're a big uh, Google place. So it's like all of our usernames and passwords are just in sheets in <laughs> Google Docs. So it's yep. probably something that we should, I think it's definitely something as we start going through our certifications and things like that. It's, it's like, these are just things that we organically have to change because, you know, there's certain requirements around where you keep that kind of stuff. So For having sure. it somewhere. And I mean, and a lot of it's going to be using like Amazon key store or mm-hmm. key yeah, management or whatever it is. And then and then like you're gonna end up putting all your stuff in there and then you're just gonna slurp it out of the environment when you do your deploys. So yeah and uh Chris Fidal actually has a has a blog post on Laravel News tutorial on how to use AWS key store to do that. 
basically the way that he did it was a bit more complex than the way that one password proposes to do it really the way that one password proposes to do it solves a ton of the problems that i've had that i've been trying to solve over the last year and a half maybe two years you know specifically around key rotation but also just around like an easy way to keep the envs in sync and to basically keep secrets off of people's machines and the nice thing too is like with one password you also get um single sign-on integration so like you get saml so if somebody is removed from your organization they immediately lose access to all those secrets right I suppose that's probably what you'd end up doing with AWS Key Store as well. But yeah. with with Chris Fidal's tutorial as well, the other thing was it's it's a bit complex. I mean, you have to it's it's not easy. It's not easy at all, actually. It's it's very difficult um to to set it all up and the only people who can administer it are still like high-level high-level admins because they have to have access yeah. to the Key Store and they are the only ones who can change it and so sort of that transparency again around like what's being used in production versus what you should use for for testing and dev and all mm-hmm. that stuff, you lose that as well. So this really is the cleanest solution I've seen. And so we're we're currently using another processor or another provider for our, our passwords. And so we're gonna have to migrate to one password, but I think we're gonna do it. I, I we just put together I had I had one of our juniors put together like a proposal for like here's all the reasons we should switch to one password and here's how the migration path would look and all this stuff. So we're working on it. I think uh, I think Jordan's gonna mm-hmm. give him a thumbs up though. So fingers crossed. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, this is this is where you get yourself an external vendor to do all of that stuff, and then I don't I don't even have access to like anything. I, I had to I had to ask for access to be able to get into Route Fifty Three, and I can't like I don't even have the ability to see like our configured load balances mm. in there. They're just like here is the C name that you have to paste in because it doesn't come up in like the drop down to search for existing load balances and things like that. So it's um it's it's been a bit of bit of fun. I've been I've been playing with Envoy this week just to kind of get our deploys not so manual like at the moment it's someone has to ssh into a server and do a git pull and then run like composer install and all this kind of stuff so i've got it set up now doing zero downtime deploys and we had with your own envoy script with our own envoy script yeah and i've used one in the past like you know from previous jobs and it was just a matter of adapting that and making it you know better um so now we we do some stuff in there where it's like we've we've only got one staging server but i as part of like building it out and testing it and whatever whatever else. I, I forgot that we've got two different apps, two different, in quotes, apps that both point to the same mm. host on different domains because yeah. one is like yeah. for administration and one is like the main app. And they're, they're routed between the different web, between the different application servers by the load balancer. But only, I'd only deployed the code to one of the hosts. So I'm like, oh, I just need to go and add like another server here run the setup story through Envoy and off it went and like provisioned all the directory, like created all the directory structures, did all the clones, made sure the SSH keys were there. Because, you know, and I sent it to the CTO and I said, oh, this is ready for review now. And he's like, so if we wanted to use this for another, I'm like, yeah, just add it into this array, the the extra survey and it would just go and do it all. Like, and and does it all in parallel, which is nice because that's just a feature of Envoy. And so this gives us a good degree of automation where, you know, someone isn't logging into the server and having to remember like what commands to run and all this kind of stuff. It's just like Envoy run, deploy, and off it goes. And you just, you know, tell it which environment you want to deploy to. By default, it will do staging so we don't accidentally, like you have to consciously say, like I want to deploy to production. And then like this will all change once we work out what we're doing for CICD. And and because once we get to a point where we need to scale and we've got AWS just spinning up servers whenever, well, it has to be able to, do that in a 
you know, more controlled way where we don't know how many instances we have to deploy to up front. So you need some terraform. But that'll be a fun adventure over the next yeah, something like so all of all of the servers and stuff are provisioned, you know, using Terraform and, and whatever That's else. Cool. So we just get told like these are the servers, use your SSH keys and this username to get in there and and um yeah, we just do the deploys. We don't have to worry about anything else, which is nice. Nice. Very cool. Well, hey, man, we are at um, 37 minutes, so we're a little bit over what we said we were going to do, so we can go ahead and wrap right. this one up. Uh, wrap it. This was episode 120. Thanks again, 1Password, for sponsoring the show. Not really, but maybe next time. Northmeetsouth.audio slash 120 is where you can find show notes for this episode. If you'd like to leave us a comment, hit us up on Twitter at Jacob Bennett, at Michael Dorenda, or at North South Audio. And as always, if you like the podcast, feel free to rate it up in your podcatcher of choice. Five stars would be much appreciated. Thanks, everybody, for hanging out with us. We will see you in a fortnight. Peace. Bye. Bye.